Deuteronomy chapter 14, uh, chapter 15, verses 4 through 8. Uh, you're welcome to read along with us in the paperback Bibles or follow along on the screen. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land your Lord God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all that is commanded that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Our New Testament reading comes from Acts chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. We are in the midst of a series in the book of Acts, and that series is called The Church Empowered. And we've called it that because Acts is a story, it's, it's the story of the church being formed and the Holy Spirit coming and then the explosive growth that followed that event. And so far as we've read through the first few chapters of this book, we've seen some really cool stories, right? Some stories about God powerfully working in the lives of His people. Um, and one of the things that Luke has really highlighted for us as he's written this book is his wonderful description of what that early church was like. And that's what we have today. That's what we just read from. Um, it's another one of those vivid descriptions of this early church community. Um, actually, he, he started the description a couple chapters ago. You might remember it, Acts chapter 2. Uh, he was telling us all the things that characterized this early church, but one thing he he mentioned that really stands out. He told us that this early church was extremely generous. The early church was extremely generous. You might remember the verse. It was chapter 2, verse 44. He said, All who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to any as all had need. And then here today, he elaborates on that by telling us, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now that, um, that level of generosity is, is really amazing. It's really impressive. It, it's really cool to, to read that they did that. Um, but I think, honestly, 
when we read these descriptions, our first instinct today is not to think that that was super cool. It's actually to, to get a little bit nervous, right? You say, well, what do you mean they sold their houses? That's, that's a little bit crazy. You know, God, God better not make me sell my house. We think, uh, you know, we start to get pretty defensive quickly when we get to passages that, that, that talk like this. And in fact, as I was reading about it this week, there are quite a few uh, modern commentaries that, that would try to, to take the teeth out of this passage, uh, to dismiss it. But we shouldn't do that. We need to look at this. We need to, to learn from it. Um, I think it's appropriate for us to read this and feel a little nervous. It's appropriate for us to read this and feel a little bit of a sting when we compare ourselves to this, the life of this early church. So instead of, of easing the pain, what I want to do right at the top is read you a quote from John Calvin. John Calvin was commenting on this 500 years ago, and here's what he had to say about it. He said, We have to have hearts that are harder than iron if we're not moved when we read this story. In those days, we read that believers gave abundantly out of what was their own. But in our day, we are content not just to jealously retain what we have, but to callously rob from other people. They sold their possessions in those days. And in our days, it's the lust to purchase that reigns supreme. At the time, love for one another made each person's possessions common property. And in our day, we're slow even to give the poor a place to live on earth and to let them enjoy the common use of water, air, and sky. Maybe you're thinking, wow, that got heavy fast. <laughs> Usually we get a few minutes, right, before we, we dig in that hard. But that's where I think we need to begin with this passage. We need to begin by looking at our discomfort with it. Instead of trying to dismiss it and, and figure out why we don't need to obey it, what I want us to do is instead figure out what we can learn. So the three things I want us to, to look at in this passage is first, what does this tell us about Christian generosity? What is Christian generosity supposed to look like? And then secondly, where does Christian generosity come from? And finally, how can we get there? So what does it tell us? Uh, where does it come from and how can we get there? All right, what, what does Christian generosity look like? Um, it's kind of interesting to think about uh, how Luke describes the church twice. And when you think of that first description, we already preached on it a few weeks ago, there's all these wonderful things that he mentions. Remember, he talks about signs and miracles that were being done in that church. He talks about how awe came upon every soul. He talks about how the people loved one another, how they lived their lives with each other, how they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. But when he gets to this passage in Acts 4, the one thing he focuses on, the thing he chooses to repeat is not all of those other details. He repeats about their generosity. And that's not an accident. It's, it's not an accident that he left the other things out. It's just his shorthand way of trying to show us the amazing work that had taken place in these people's lives. Because he knew what Scripture teaches, that, that all throughout Scripture, and especially in the Gospels, we are told that, that our relationship to wealth 
Our relationship to our possessions is actually very indicative of all the other things that are going on in our hearts. And so when these people in Acts 4, they're giving radically to one another, it is a sign that something fundamental has changed inside of them. For whatever reason, right? We're going to talk about it in a minute, but we, we see here that for whatever reason, these people, their relationship to their possessions had been totally changed from what the rest of their community did with their possessions. Now, when we try to figure out why this happened, um, there are some skeptical scholars who will look at this and they'll say, well, the reason they were this reckless with their money was because they were mistaken. They thought Jesus was going to come back any minute. And so they thought they didn't need their money. So they just did whatever they, they pleased with it, and they ended up being wrong. Now, maybe you've heard that before, but I, I want to tell you, Luke uh, gives us no hint that that is their motivation. That doesn't show up anywhere in the gospel. It doesn't show up anywhere in Acts. We have no reason to, to believe that that was why they did this. The reason, only reason we think that is because we are modern people. <laughs> and we look back at the story and we, we got to find some way to try to explain it. Because it seems crazy. But I would say that is just the fruit of, of, of that discomfort we feel. There's really no reason for us to explain it away, saying they, they didn't know what they were doing or they, they had some wrong ideas. John Stott, who is a, uh, a British theologian, a British preacher, or he was, um, he says that whenever we look at passages like this, we need to be careful because we can go wrong in two directions. On one hand, we, we can't do what those skeptics say. We can't just dismiss this saying that they were making a mistake. They, they were motivated by the false expectation that, that Jesus was coming back immediately because Luke doesn't tell us that. But on the other hand, we, the other mistake we can make is we could look at this and say, this is the law for every Christian today. This is how we are supposed to live. This is what is expected for us, communal sharing of all of our property. Um, that, that wouldn't be correct. That, it wouldn't be extraordinary. It wouldn't be mentioned like this if, if that's how we were supposed to receive it. So instead, what we need to do is we need to take a step back and just ask, what is the basic message here? What is this example teaching us? And it's pretty simple. It is teaching us that there is a radical generosity at the heart of the Christian faith. That's the point. There is a radical generosity at the heart of the Christian faith. In fact, this, their standard for, for generosity, their standard for giving was, was shocking to the world around them. People were drawn to it, and they were also kind of scared by it. But you know, the, what they were doing, it was nothing, uh, it wasn't just a new idea. They hadn't just come up with this in Acts chapter 4. This is the way things always were. We read Deuteronomy, right? We read the Deuteronomy passage a minute ago. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, God tells the people that, that there should be no poor among them. And if there is someone who becomes poor, he says, don't harden your heart against your neighbor, but give to him. Or think about Jesus. When he was talking about what it meant to be a disciple, what it meant to love your neighbor. Do you remember this passage when somebody asked, you know, who is my neighbor? What does it mean to love my neighbor? He gave the story of the Good Samaritan, where 
a man goes and willingly gives his time, his energy, his money to help someone in need without any expectation that he's going to get anything back in return. But you still might be skeptical that this is the way it is. Maybe you're, you're, you're thinking of some, some other excuses. You say, yeah, yeah, you know, those are the, those are the ideals. That's the way things are in a, in a perfect world, but surely no one can really do this kind of stuff. No one can really be generous like these people were. But I think we need to even remind ourselves of the basic message of the gospel. Jesus, in, in Luke, when he starts his mission, there's this moment where he goes into the temple and he picks up a scroll uh, out of the book of Isaiah and he unravels it and he reads from it to declare what his mission is, his purpose on earth. And here's what he says. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. The very first thing that Jesus mentions is that He has come to bring good news to the poor. And one scholar I read this week, he said, how can the gospel be good news for the poor unless it offers justice as well as salvation? Unless it offers the abolition of poverty as well as the remission of sins? So if you're skeptical, just know this, that, that this kind of, of radical generosity that, that we mentioned here, it, this isn't the only example of it. It wasn't just this one moment in Acts 4 that the church lived like this, but we know for a fact that for hundreds of years, the church continued to carry on this way. We have a letter from, uh, let me remember what his name is. It's Emperor Julian. He lived in uh, the 360 AD, and he was writing a letter complaining about the growth of Christianity. And in that letter, one of the quotes he gives was that the, the impious Galileans the reason why their faith is growing is because they support our poor as well as their own. Or Rodney Stark, he's a, a sociologist who wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And his, uh, through his studies, looking back on how Christianity managed to grow into this, from this small little group of, of people to the, the religion of the empire, he said the, the number one thing that took place was that when the plagues came to the cities and everybody fled, the Christians stayed around. The Christians cared for the sick and the poor at the risk of their own lives. And when people saw that, they came to faith. And eventually, it became the religion of the empire. Radical generosity is what led the empire to faith. So what do we make of this, though? What do we make of these ex extreme examples? Well, I think it, we, we just need to, to know that Christian generosity is radical. Christian generosity is sacrificial. It's a costly generosity. It's the kind of generosity that, that confuses, that even scares people a little bit because it makes no sense. It seems dangerous. 
Why would anybody risk their own home for another person? Why would anybody risk their life for another person? Well, let's answer that question. Where does this kind of generosity come from? In our passage, it says in verse 36, Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Luke lays out this example for us of this guy named Barnabas. Now, Barnabas, he's going to show up a lot more in this story, but this is his introduction. And uh, I believe the, what we want to gain from this first introduction to Barnabas is not the specifics of his actions, but the heart behind it. Next week, we're going to compare his gift to another gift uh, from Ananias and Sapphira. And, and what Luke wants us to see is the heart behind what Barnabas is doing here. Right? We know that practically, uh, if we all did what Barnabas did, it would create more problems than it solves. Right? If every one of us in the church, if we all sold our houses uh, and gave the money to the church, we'd be in big trouble because then we'd all be homeless. We'd, we'd have more, more needs in the long run. But we can also tell just by the way that uh, Luke is exalting this example that, that it is something unique. It's something that's not mandatory. It's something that's special. Um, the people weren't required to give up all their property. But instead, uh, what's amazing about Barnabas is why he does this. See, Barnabas, because of the need that he saw in his church, because of the need that he saw in uh, the people, in the church, in the city of Jerusalem, he decided to give what he had to provide for the needs of others. He counted the well-being of his brothers and sisters in the church above his own financial safety net. And what we learn from this is this kind of generosity... It only comes out of worship. Some pastors I've heard put it this way, that, that you will always give effortlessly to the things that you worship. You'll always give effortlessly to, to whatever you worship. Giving your wealth away to the things that you truly desire, it's usually not very hard, right? Jesus put it this way. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. In other words, your spending is a pretty good indicator of what you really worship, of what your heart is truly hoping for, what your heart's truly resting in and, and longing for. So let me ask you that question. Where does your money most easily go when you have it? I know we all have expenses, right? We all have some stuff we can't avoid. Uh, in, our, in our city, housing, utilities, those things, they take up way more of, of our income than, than most people in the rest of this country. So I, I want to be careful here. I, what, I, what I'm pointing at here is, is more, uh, where do your resources, what, what most easily gets the rest? I mean, just imagine it for a minute. Let's, let's do a little thought experiment, okay? Imagine all of a sudden you just got an extra 
Like maybe you find out you got a rich uncle somewhere, distant, long lost, and when he died in his will, he just sent out checks to a bunch of distant relatives. And so now all of a sudden you got $2,000. What are you going to do with that money? And maybe you're going to head over to Best Buy and start like comparing those super 4K, ultra HD curved TVs and think about that. Maybe just get on Amazon and start scrolling. <laughs> see, see what's out there. I don't know, maybe, you got, maybe you're like, I'll put this towards a loan that, that I'm trying to pay off. Or, or maybe you're just, it's that vacation, you know. I, I just want to go somewhere where it doesn't snow every weekend in March, right? But I wonder, would any of you get that check and say, I'm going to give all of this away to the kingdom of God? How long would it take for that thought even to cross your mind? Would you ever even give any of it away? I think what those kinds of questions do is they expose just how different we view our possessions than this church did. Right? We view our possessions as things that are ours. And we can do whatever we want with them. But that's not how this church was. They did not believe that their, were, their possessions were things they rightfully owned, but instead they saw that everything they had was a gift that they had been given to steward for the kingdom of God. They knew that nothing was really their own, that they owed their whole lives and everything they had to God. And that's why when we read this story, both here and in Acts chapter 2, both times when Luke is talking about this crazy generous lifestyle, he only mentions it as the aftermath to this powerful experience of God's grace. So in Acts chapter 2, when he talks about it, it's right after Peter has just preached. And this crowd, who many of them had been present for Jesus' crucifixion, he tells them the good news that you, you've been God's enemies. You've crucified the, the living Son of God. But because of Jesus, because of his death, you actually now have a path to move out of being God's enemies and into being members of his household. You can inherit his kingdom. What amazing grace, right? And as a response, they become generous people. Here it's the same thing. Verse 33, it says, With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. A great experience of the grace of God is the only thing that is going to bring about this kind of generosity in our lives. Because here's the deal. If you believe at the end of the day, you have you basically earned your salvation. You know, I'm saved, but I'm, I am a pretty good person to begin with. Right? God, God's relatively pleased with me. I, I, I deserve to be amongst God's people. If you think that's your relationship to your Savior, well then, you'll be generous occasionally because you have to when there's a deserving cause so that you can keep being a good person. But if you believe the Gospel, that you are completely and utterly indebted to Christ for your salvation, 
that you're not worthy of your salvation, that, that you're not someone who is special, and you don't even have a leg to stand on in the presence of God, that just like these people in Acts chapter 2, it is your sin that sent Jesus to the cross, and even though that's true, because of God's great mercy, He has come down and saved you. In fact, He has spared no expense for you. He has poured out His grace lavishly upon you. He didn't just sell a field to meet your need. He gave up His life for you. That kind of grace that kind of experience of Jesus, that grabs your hearts. And where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. People who have known God's redemption give to His kingdom because that's where their hearts are. So that's where it comes from. Where does this generosity come from? It comes from grace. We, we will show this we will, we will become radically generous when we realize we are a people who have received radical generosity already. So then the question is, how do we get here practically? How do we become like these people in Acts? Because, folks, we haven't gotten there. I'm just going to be honest with you. And one way I know that we haven't gotten there is because of the way that we give. Now, I want to be careful. I'm, I'm not talking about whether or not we are, are meeting the church budget here. <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm talking about is how we give as, as, as followers of Christ. The way that we live, our lifestyle of giving. Right? What we're seeing, what we read about here, the, this kind of giving, it's not an activity. It's not just one moment. This is a lifestyle. Luke wants us to see that. The thing that stood out to the world was their sacrificial lives. It wasn't just a couple of moments where somebody sold something expensive. These people lived every day generously, graciously responding to what God had done for them. And that's always been the pattern. That has always been the pattern for the people of God. Maybe you remember the Old Testament. It talks about the tithe. Right? When they're wandering in the wilderness, God sets up this law, and He establishes this law that requires God's people always to give the first fruits of their wealth to God. He talks about giving that very first 10% back to the, back to the work, back to the temple. So it's the first of their crops, right? The first of their livestock, whatever it is that they're producing. Uh, and it is a reminder, though, that the reason he asks for the first fruits is because it's a reminder to them. It's a reminder that everything they have is from God. They give back that first little bit, recognizing that 100%, not 10%, but 100% of it actually belongs to God. And then, they get, after they give that 10%, they live off of what's left. But does that look like the way we give? Is that what our lives look like? 
I don't think so. I think generally, our giving is not motivated from this lifestyle where we believe God's given us everything, but instead, our, our, our giving is, is coming from uh, uh, guilt, right? Instead of this regular, grace-based giving, our giving tends to be kind of sporadic. It's circumstantial. And yeah, it's usually guilt-induced. I'm glad we already took up the offering, right? <laughs> we don't give worshipfully. We give to make ourselves feel better. We give in a response to a crisis or a compelling story or, or just a sad story. And we don't give out of the first fruits, but we give out of the leftovers. Once we've spent everything we need to spend, we look around and if there's anything left, we'll give out of that as long as it doesn't make any significant impact in our life. And I'm not just saying that about you, but it's the way the church is. You know, ask any pastor. We are not generous. And the net result of that, you know, you might think it's a small thing. We say, well, yeah, just because I can't do it right now, just because I can't be very generous right now, you know, hopefully everybody else is carrying their weight. But the fact is, the net result of, of all of us living this way is that the church no longer resembles the church in Acts. We just look like the rest of the world. I saw a meme this week online. It was um, a really famous, you know, wealthy, well-known pastor and his wife standing in this, you know, fancy, like, mansion-looking, mahogany-laden room in front of a fireplace. And it was making fun of those Geico ads that say, you know, I just saved 15% by switching to Geico. And it said, I just saved 100% of my taxes by switching to Jesus, right? The idea that, 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 that you know, these, these pastors are just hoarding wealth. And that's the, that is the world's perception of us. Much of the world believes that the church is a greedy institution and that Christianity is a fraud. And yeah, okay, I think that's unfair. But the reality is, the world sees that a lot more than they ever see this. But, what if things were different? What if today, we were to actually repent? What if today, we were actually able to gain freedom? from the stronghold that our possessions have on our lives? What if we stopped seeing our things as something that we were supposed to lord over, but instead as gifts that God had given us to steward for His kingdom? And think about it. What if our church became a place where people were radically generous with one another? What if we were really able to preach good news to the poor? Now I know, I know for a lot of us that the practical weight of this is heavy, right? I know that, that the idea of giving 10% of your income right now is, is unrealistic. Some of us, we don't have any money. 
But I want you to ask yourself, no matter where you're coming from this morning, what would it mean for you to start giving of your resources in a way that reflects how much you have already received? What could you do with your time? What could you do with your talent? What could you do with your wealth? Man, I wonder if it could happen. You know, what could we become a people who stun the world with our generosity? The kind of place where people are just drawn in because they say something is different about them. How could we become the kind of church that, that makes the world nervous for all the right reasons? I'd love to see that. I'd love to see us being a people who, who live within our means, or maybe even beneath our means, so that we can meet the needs of others. So as we wrap up today, I just want to invite you, as you're thinking about this stuff, as, as it may lay heavy on your heart, I want you instead to, to look at Jesus. I don't want you to try to make a bunch of resolutions right now, but instead I want you to get a clear glimpse of your Savior. A Savior who has spared no expense for you. Who has become poor so that you could become rich. I want to invite you to, to hear that. Consider his kingdom and let it change your heart. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father, I... I'm convicted by these words. I don't stand up here a, a righteous man. I stand up here knowing that I am often trusting in my bank account, whether it's empty or whether it's full. I look at the bottom line and I think this is how secure my life is. But that is a, not a position of faith. <laughs> it's a position of unbelief. God, would you help us to root ourselves in your kingdom that cannot be shaken? Would you help us to believe your promises that you have gone and prepared a place for us? That your kingdom, your riches are ours. And Father, would you forgive us for our lack of generosity? Forgive us for the ways we have stored up extra for ourselves when others around us have none. Forgive us for the way that we have let our lust for purchasing, define our lives. God, would you change us? Would you convict us? And most of all, Lord, would you lead us to Jesus, who welcomes even the most guilty, the most greedy of us, and says, come and be made clean. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.